Trainer Talks and Tales acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Turrbal and Yugara people of Mianjin. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Trainer Talks and Tales love having an array of guests with a variety of opinions. However, the views of the individuals do not necessarily reflect the perspectives of the host facilities. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Trainer Talks and Tales. I'm Daisy. And I'm Tess. And today we have a really fun and exciting episode for you, but it is a little bit different as you are just going to be joined by me and Tess today. Yeah, I'm excited for this one. I know usually we have pretty exciting guests on the show, but we've had a lot of frequently asked questions sent in, um, varying from, you know, training to staff to managing in a team of different people and personalities. So we thought Daisy and I would try and address them the best we could, keeping in mind that it's our opinions and we're going to answer it the best we can from our perspective. So we'll see how we go. Yeah, exactly right. We can try and give some advice, but feel free to not take on any advice or we'd love your (laughs) feedback if you did enjoy it. Um, But quickly, Tess, hey, before we get into the episode, I actually just wanted to give a bit of a shout out. I was at work today and I appreciate this episode is going to come out in about another week, Um, but I actually had a listener come up and say hello. So her name is Mel and she works with koalas in Western Australia and she's currently just traveling around Queensland. Um, But she came over, she watched the presentation, we chatted for a little bit while um, watching the penguins, which was really cool. And she was, she spoke really well of the podcast and it was really nice to you know meet someone that actually listens which is great and you know she was so lovely so I felt like she deserved a permanent shout out on the podcast absolutely we love it you give us um, some feedback we'll, we'll have a shout out for you on the potty yeah, and if you ever visit have... like please come and say hi like please say hi to Tess and I because we absolutely love hearing from people yeah we've had a lot of people say that they love it or even just at work having colleagues say hey I like that episode it's very encouraging to us because, yeah, as we've mentioned, it's a lot of work. So um, it's good positive reinforcement for us, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, Tess, well, I'm excited. So let's get straight into this. Let's do it. Okay, Tess, now we have had a question come through and I know we have addressed this, I think probably back in our very first episode, but before we get into the nitty gritty, how did me and you meet? Well, we met a long time ago, over a decade ago. I was a keeper at Lone Pine Koala Sanctuary and you were a volunteer. So we raked the kangaroo paddock for hours on end (laughs) many a year ago. Yeah, it's so crazy how we met with animals all that way back. And then I guess we probably went a fair few years without really talking too much. I think we were on socials together, etc., um, but then I started working at Australia Zoo, became really close friends with our good friend Adele, uh, who was always good friends with Taryn, who started working at Lone Pine with you. You guys got really tight. We also worked with Olivia, who is um, used to work at the zoo as well. And she's also amazing. And we kind of started our own group chat. We are the gals or what we call the athletes, the least athletic people in the country. But that's kind of how we, I feel like we've got closer and closer over the last sort of two or three years, which is pretty fun. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love it. It's a small industry and uh, you make friends within it. So it's worked out well for us. <laughs> yeah, we've got our own little sisterhood us a lot, which I love. Okay, <laughs> enough about us. Maybe we should talk about some animals. Um, so one of the first questions that came through was what is easy, easiest or the hardest species that you've worked with? This was a pretty tricky one. Daisy and I discussed this before the potty. Um, there's different you know, there's different attributes to every species. Um, for me personally, I would say that owls are trickier to work with um, in managing their food drive, um, whereas like peregrines, um, falcons, sorry, peregrines and falcons, well, same thing, but, you know, peregrines, <laughs> uh, kites, eagles um, just seem a little bit more food motivated to me. So that that would be my response. What about you, Daisy? Yeah, I think it's a tough question. I I don't honestly think I can answer what's the easiest species I've ever worked with because I think they all probably have their different challenges in slightly different ways. Um, but I think when I thought about what the hardest is, I think I look back to probably when I used to work with parrots and maybe more in particular red-tailed black cockatoos. And I only say this because I think when I worked with them, I had a really, really basic understanding of opera conditioning training and I guess reflecting back on it I really wish I had the experience I have now for when I was working with those animals um, but as we always say like you do what you do until you know better and so there's there's no point being too hard on yourself for that I guess parrots are very complex animals and in my experience for the majority require really like a really in-depth relationship with their trainers um, which takes time and it takes a lot of patience as well um, but the training principles I guess are the same for all animals at the end of the day but I think yeah reflecting back they're probably one of the hardest species that I've worked with. Absolutely I would uh, agree I haven't had a lot to do with parrots other than my pets at home but my understanding is parrots are so rapport based and, and raptors are so food driven so chalk and cheese there. Yeah, anyway absolutely. our next question was let's share some tips and tricks on getting into the industry. Now, I know we've touched on this before, but um, we thought we'd formally go through some answers. Yeah, definitely. I feel like this is probably one of the most common questions that we get through. And everyone's pathway into the industry is completely different. And that's why we love asking all of our guests that particular question, because it's so interesting for us to be able to hear where people got, like how people got to where they are, sorry. Um, but I guess one thing that me and Tess both speak about a lot and one thing that both Tess and I did was our Certificate 3 in Captive Animals, which is no longer called that. It is now called the Certificate 3 in Wildlife and Exhibited Animal Care. And I'm pretty sure you can do it at a variety of different TAFEs, um, distance learning or in-person learning. You just need to have a facility that you can do your practical components of that. So I think you get an assessor that comes out and assesses your practical components um, but for me, I absolutely took so much value in that certificate, especially some stuff like exhibit design, uh, why we breed in human care, the importance of, you know, transporting animals for genetics. That stuff to me was really important. What what sort of parts of it did you find really interesting, Tess? Uh, I loved it. Yeah, the Cert 3 and the Cert 4. Um, and it was just so much more uh, engaging doing the work through your workplace and then getting um, to basically nut it out at home through these assignments and assessments. So, yeah, I absolutely loved it. It was a great um, certificate to do. So if you can do your Cert 3 and 4, that's great to have on uh, under your belt. I think pretty much every zoo job these days likes to see it, hey? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think it's so valuable and it's so relevant to what we do. 
But also if you are looking at maybe doing some slightly further higher education, looking at degrees, because I know some facilities do require degrees. Um, obviously, you can do a Bachelor of Veterinary Science if you're looking into the more veterinary or medical backgrounds. Um, Bachelor of Animal Science, Marine Science, uh, Zoology and Animal Behaviour too are another few good ones to look out for. Yeah, and uh, another great way to get into the industry, and we've said it a million times before, but is, of course, volunteering. Both Daisy and myself volunteered and that worked well for us. At my facility in particular, that's really uh, important. A lot of people there have volunteered first. It just means that you're um, demonstrating that you can do the work and you work with the staff well. And basically, it's a trial run really to see if you can slot into the role and slot into the team. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, volunteering has been super important, like in my progress. Do you think it's changed over the last few years? Like, I feel like when I first started, it was almost so difficult to get a volunteer position. And now looking at some of the other facilities I used to work at, they're almost running short of volunteers. Yeah, absolutely. And I have had a couple of people say to me, oh, Tess, it's all well and good for you to say volunteer, but I'm 40 and I have a mortgage and I have um, kids and I don't have the time to dedicate five days volunteering and that kind of thing. And I absolutely appreciate that. That's very easy for Tess to say when she was 19, living at home, living her best life, she can volunteer and work (laughs) and that kind of thing. So I would just say, um, depending on the facility and what their requirements are for volunteering, even if you can just do the bare minimum, if you say, hey, I can volunteer every Sunday, once a month, like that's something um, because it's all great stuff on the resume and you get your face known. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess there's one other thing maybe I wanted to touch on with sort of getting into the industry. And I think it's being really aware of your local facility or possibly a desired facility that you're looking at trying to get into. Um, And like touching base with them and seeing what they require for you to get a role in that facility um certain facilities offer different things they expect different things a lot of government facilities rely on having degrees some private facilities don't anymore um so definitely check in or even reach out to other trainers staff that are working at those desired facilities there's no point you know working in a particular direction if that's actually they need something completely different from you so you know be proactive about that and looking to what you actually want to do in what facility as well Yeah, I think that's a great point. And we discussed before this that when you're applying for roles, it says right there on the application what they're looking for. So pretend, for example, you want to be a Raptor keeper and you're applying for a Raptor role. It'll say certificate three, two years prior Raptor experience. Like you'll know um, exactly what is needed for the role because it'll say um, on that application. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so question number four was, Tess, do we have any tips or advice for preparing and completing job interviews within the industry? I actually saw a great presentation on this on the last ASZK conference I went to. Uh, There was a couple of speakers that do a lot of interviews. They were um, ASZK um, members and quite high up in their facilities. And some of the tips they had were quite unexpected. Um, One of them was bringing a piece of paper with a few dot points. Um, To me, that seems like a bit like, oh, you know, like this person isn't prepared, but they said it's the opposite. Um, It just means that there are 
points there that you want to address so if you get nervous or perhaps your conversation leads elsewhere and you go a bit off topic you can refer back to those notes um, and address those key points that you wanted to say within the interview yeah I really love that you brought that up because I think one thing I was thinking of is like you don't always need to come into an interview with questions. I think sometimes you're expected to have questions to ask. But if you do come into the interview really confident with your questions and sort of already have an idea of what the answers might be. So by, you know, having them written down and having them something in front of you, you're going to ensure that you don't forget them and that you're really confident in what you're asking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I did hear this uh, great point once where you say, uh, what do you expect of me in this role? How can I do the best I possibly can if I were to get this role? So kind of throw the question back to the interviewer um, and they like that. They like being questioned themselves as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess another point that I kind of thought of was to make sure you kind of have a really thorough understanding of the facility that you're applying for the job that's at. Just because I think it looks it, it looks really good if you have a really good understanding of what that facility offers, what their mission statements are, their morals are around the animals and what their focuses might be. You know, for example, if there's a facility that has a huge focus on sustainability and you get the question that's raised, it could be, you know, why do you want to work for this facility? Well, I want to work for this facility because of A, B and C, but also I love the fact that you focus really hugely on sustainability. It's something that I'm really passionate about as well. So I think that will look really good to the employee, employer. Sorry. And then the only other one I thought of as well was I think from having a look at some sort of recent job applications in preparation for this and just from you know conversation with other people that are applying for jobs, one thing that seems to be becoming more and more of a requirement is an understanding of operant conditioning. So I think having a really basic understanding of that is really great for a lot of job positions as it's probably something that is coming up more and more commonly within interviews. Um, even just being able to explain the operant condition quadrant, an example of each within the relevant field or with a relevant animal, I think would look really desirable. Yeah, absolutely. Do research, do your homework a little bit um, so that you're confident with your answers, even under pressure. Yes, absolutely. Shall we go to question five? Yes, sounds good. Number five was uh, decisions around changing facilities or industries. Now, I think this one is a toughie. And uh, Tess and I, again, like we briefly touched on this question before we started recording and we both kind of have really different points to to this question, which I think is kind of cool. So um, I guess one thing that I've written or I think about, sorry, with this uh, with this question is if you feel like you've developed in your role as much as you possibly can, look for progression at a different facility if you aren't able to get that progression where you are right now. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you cannot come back to that facility, but it just might mean for the time being that role that you're ready to progress to is not available like go to an external facility grab that experience it looks great for you it looks great on your resume and then you'll be able to bring that knowledge and different experiences back to the facility that you worked at prior if that's where you want to be long term and you're going to get such a different variety of point of views different you know aspects into husbandry training etc and it might actually end up taking you on a completely different pathway that you weren't expecting so I think being really open to moving facilities which I know we hear a lot in you know some of our recordings and episodes with different guests but I do think it can be really valuable yeah absolutely I think that's such a 
positive answer. Um, mine was quite the opposite in terms of um, in terms of making those decisions to move facilities or industries. I think it's really important to hold a mirror up to yourself and say, "Am I being a positive person at work? Am I nice to be around? Um, am I going to have?" a great aura or a good vibe when I'm walking with my animals. If you're negative or if you're like, oh, God, I hate this place, Ugh, bloody Monday, that is probably going to be rubbing off on others. And nobody likes it when you're at work with someone who doesn't want to be there. So if you think that that might be you, then it's time to move jobs. Yeah, and that can be hard. Like that can be really hard to check in with yourself and maybe realize that you might be becoming that person. And, you know, I always think like good on you for you to taking that step to realizing that this isn't filling your cup anymore and, you know, you need to put energy somewhere else where. Yeah, absolutely. And I've loved it when I have seen people who um, aren't enjoying a workplace and they go, oh, it's time for me to go. I'm like, good on you for like making that decision and doing it quickly as opposed to hanging around for another six months and making everyone else miserable around you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> it's good to see. Now, um, our next question was resources for expanding knowledge on animal training. Yeah, great question. Um, so obviously I'm going to recommend podcasts because podcasts are the best. Um, and I think they're a really current way of expanding your knowledge. I don't think podcasts were anywhere near as big a thing as they are now you know, probably like even four to five years ago. So we're really lucky to be able to have that resource in our ears. Um, some of the ones that I guess me and Tess recommend all the time is the Natural Encounters Tech Talk podcast, the ABMA uh, Animal Behavioral Conversations podcast, obviously the Ross Safari podcast, which we love with John, um, Zoo Logic, we've got the Animal Training Academy and Wild Enrichment are I guess a few of our favorites. And obviously Trainer Talks and Tales is probably the best one you should <laughs> listen to. Um, but on top of that, I definitely recommend becoming a member at different animal organizations. So obviously here in Australia, we have the ASZK, we've got the ABMA, IMADA, and then over in Europe and England, uh, the BIAZA and the EAAM. Really cool to be a part of those organizations as you have the opportunity to be exposed to heaps of training resources, different papers, and they generally come with a really big glossary of terms, which is great if you're trying to develop your training uh, knowledge too. And then I guess maybe some slightly more advanced options, which would be something I would love to look into in the future, is looking for different courses that you can maybe participate in. I know they've got some really great ones at the Karen Pryor Training Academy, um, Beh Behaviour Works, which is run by Susan Friedman and Natural Encounters. They all have courses available both in person and online. So um, definitely kind of worth looking into some of those. And I guess if you're already in a role, something that I have found so incredibly valuable in expanding my knowledge is finding yourself a mentor within your work environment, touching base with them, explaining your goals and how they're able to possibly help you um, because we can learn so much from each, each other and hopefully one day that you'll be that mentor person to someone else too. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. And I think we are in a very collaborative industry. So um, if you want to reach out to people in similar similar roles or working with um, the same taxa, just say, hey, can you flick me through your training plan on how you did that? Like people are usually pretty happy to be like, yeah, of course. Like they want to see um, those animals reach the same goals. So um, reach out to others doing great stuff and they're usually pretty happy and willing to share their information. 
Yeah, definitely. And you see it all on like Facebook now. There's so many different animal groups, which is really cool to see. Hey, I'm trying to train this. Anyone got any tips? Hey, like any more enrichment you can help me out with? So yeah, that, I don't think we should undervalue those you know communities that we've got. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> all right. Now, our next question was how to develop or improve presentation skills to be best connected with the public so Daisy this is over to you you love presenting so I do I do love it I love this question and I feel like we should we're hoping to sorry aim to do an episode on this you know completely next year we're just trying to find the perfect guest to help us out with it um, and I really love the pe- the fact that people are interested in this skill set as I do think it is so important now, before anything, I always recommend, um, and it's an article that I came across quite recently, actually, and it's on the Natural Encounters website. If you go onto their website and click onto papers and scroll down, there is a fantastic paper that's been written by Steve Martin. Uh, it's called Connecting with Our Audience. And actually, recently, I pulled it apart for our SEAL presentation and was able to, you know, pair it with some of the stuff we're working on in our presentation and where we can improve, where we're doing really well at. Um, so if you haven't read that, I highly recommend. It's going to really give you a slightly different insight into why we present and why we have presentations, shows, etc. cetera. Um, one thing I think is really valuable in being able to deliver a really good presentation is to remain current with what is happening in the world with the animals that you work with, both in the wild and in human care. And this could be just as simple as having a good understanding of where the animal that you're working with sits on the IUCN red list. Are they an endangered species? Are they critically endangered? Are they vulnerable, at least concerned? What direction are they going in? What are the main reasons that they're there? And making sure that you stay current with that because that's changing all the time. I remember back when I was at the zoo, um, I worked quite closely with the koala team and working on a koala presentation for them. And obviously at the time we had those devastating bushfires in Australia. And, you know, straight away I was like, this needs to be something that we're putting in. This is current. This is happening. We need, you know, people that are listening can relate to these things that are happening around the world. So it's important that we are aware of them. Um, And, you know, if we spot seals around our area, which we do all the time, we make sure we bring them up in our presentations too, um, just so people have, you know, that little bit more of a connection to what's happening. If that makes sense, Tess, (laughs) I'm probably rambling on a little bit. No, I agree. And I think that makes it um, even more engaging for the presenter too. It's not the same monotonous script that you repeat every single day and have done for the last few years. It keeps you accountable to um current status of your species or current events or um yeah I I really appreciate that because if you're more engaged your audience is going to be more engaged as well yeah definitely and you know one thing I say in my penguin presentation every day is because we came across a study that was completed last year and it was the fact that there is now the highest number of little blue penguins on Phillip Island in about 54 years, which is incredible. And such an, it's such an amazing article and really cool research program. And like how amazing that we can share a conservation win because we've spoken about in other episodes that we do occasionally speak about a lot of the things that we need to be doing better. So when we have something that's winning and we've actually done really well at, we absolutely need to make sure that we can raise that attention to the public too. When it comes, I guess, to looking at developing your presentation or a demo that you do as part of your day, I think it's really great to check in with what you're actually saying and then ensure you're communicating that to the public effectively. 
Now, I only say this because I think sometimes we can focus really hard on how we're talking and making sure we're presenting and communicating effectively and our voice is lovely, but we might forget exactly what we're talking about. So I remember back when I used to work at one of my other facilities, we were saying, you know, these animals are threatened in the wild. They're doing really bad because of the illegal pet trade. And these presenters are smiling and chatting and so happy. I'm like, okay, we need to check in with what we're talking about because this isn't a good thing. So we need to make sure that we're communicating that how we want it to be interpreted by the guests that are listening as well. Um, And I think this is probably the most prominent when you're doing those call for actions, like human related threats, for example. One thing as well, I think it's really important to remember is that people don't like being told what to do or things that we aren't doing well at. So I guess just referring back to that thing I spoke about earlier with the penguins, make these points really short, make them short, impactful, but not like we're rambling on about everything that you're doing wrong. Um, we want to make sure that the, the guests are staying engaged in what we're communicating about too. And if you don't mind, test me bringing up one more thing, but you can go jump in if you have a, something on that. No, you go. I'll, I'll no? touch on afterwards. Okay, okay, cool. Um, so yeah, the one other thing that I think is incredibly valuable, and I know it's really difficult because a lot of the time facilities are short-staffed or everyone is so insanely busy doing amazing things with their jobs, um, but where you can sit in the audience and watch a fellow colleague present not only are you going to be able to take obviously heaps of tips and tricks from those from those people as presenters but you're also going to get to see the audience and you're going to be able to watch the audience and you're going to be able to see what they are most engaged in and when you lose them because I try and do this probably about two to three times a week if I can um And you will be so shocked at what you think people are engaged in and what they're actually engaged in. So I think unless you're really talking to the guests, the public, and seeing what they take back from those presentations, you're not going to be able to know, you know, what is the most important parts of that and what they're taking in and what needs more work to make sure that all those messages are getting across. Yeah, I think that's a great tip to to make sure that they are getting engaged with what you believe they are um, really, really, resonating with um my main points are I have been presenting every day for 10 years and my presentation style and my dialogue is very different to what it was a decade ago when I first started it was here's every single fact I know about this species um and how great are they and this that and the other and you lose attention spans it's probably you know with instagram reels and tiktoks and all (laughs) this kind of stuff over the last few years attention spans are short people can't stay engaged for very long periods i mean there's been studies on it um that you know you can only really keep someone's attention for 10 minutes if not under so we've moved our presentations to about um 10 minutes uh, and I've noticed a great difference. I think people can keep engaged with that short time frame. So if you do have the ability to um, edit your script in terms of um, length, I think that's important. Um, and Daisy touched on it before in terms of, you know, keeping current with what's happening with your species, depending on your facility, if you're allowed to. I also think it's really great if you add your own um, personality into your own script or into your own presenting style. For me, I feel like people will resonate more if I will talk about something that's going wrong or perhaps uh, a bird's flying over and I'm not going to ignore it uh, and keep 
going with my script, I'm going to say, whoa, a wild Cobran Falcon is chasing our Falcon. Or, <laughs> you know, we're, we're going to talk about that stuff because it's happening then and there. You don't have to stick to the script. You can, um, if you can, you can talk about what's happening in the moment. And people appreciate that because they know you're ad lib as well and improvising in that context. So, yeah, keep it short um, and, yeah, let your personality shine through is important. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And like people love seeing when things go wrong. Like yes. even though you you're sat there freaking out, I'm like, why is this behavior not working? Am I reinforcing this correctly? They do something funny or they don't do anything at all. Hilarious to the crowd. So yeah, I think you're right. I think acknowledging those things is fine. You're good to have a good laugh. And I think the most important thing you said is to allow your personality to shine through because not sing- not one single person presents the same or interacts with guests the same. And that's so unique to you. And you all have your own sort of passions and drives and that will be able to come through in those presentations. Absolutely. But yeah, I love that question. And if I could do a dream job, it would probably be like going to facilities and just like working on their presentations and their teams and like, oh, it'd be so much fun. Plus, obviously, it's still doing what I do now, so it's best. But like, love doing that stuff. So yeah, hopefully we can get someone on and we can do a full episode on sort of presentations and, you know, even like how they've developed and changed over the last years would be really interesting too. Yeah, if you are that person or if you know someone, slide into our DMs. (laughs) Yes, yes, for sure. Okay, well, we do have one last question. I feel like we could probably sit here and talk all day long, but maybe we could do another episode next year. Um, But this actually, we stole this from Zoo Creepers, which is one of those amazing Facebook community pages. Um, But we thought it was a cool one to talk about. So the question was, does anyone have any tips for when a coworker transitions into a supervisory role? Uh, this one's a great question. And I remember when I got ahead of my department, there were people in my team who had been there like a decade. And suddenly it was my job to say how the day would run or to say, um, you know, what training we're going to do. And it was it was so much. And, you know, these staff were so lovely and were very um, understanding that it was a big change. So my only advice would be to, you know, make sure you put yourself um, in their shoes. So pretend someone's, um, you know, been put in a supervisor role above you and they were your friend. Just, you know, keep in mind that they're um, acknowledging these changes or they're transitioning to this role too. So basically give them a bit of time to move into that space um, and realise that things will change, um, conversation topics will change. There will be times where there might need to be disciplinary action or maybe feedback needs to be given but if you can just flip into their shoes every now and then and realize how difficult it is for them as well yeah I really like that I think you spoke really well there and I think if it if that co-worker is you know a good friend as well remember that there is so much else to just you know the work conversation you've got so much else that you can chat about too and maintain that friendship and relationship in other ways than just talking about work yeah absolutely well, Tess, this has been so fun. I've enjoyed doing this episode a lot. How about you? Yeah, absolutely. I like going back and forth and, um, yeah, gets me thinking too. So it's been a great chat. Yeah, definitely. Well, we'd love to get feedback if you guys enjoyed it, if you got anything out of it. Um, if there's other topics you'd love us to talk about in the future, we appreciate you guys so much and all of your feedback. Yeah. Any more questions, just um, send them our way and we can do this um in 10 eps time or something (laughs) yeah yeah definitely sounds good 
Okay, well, we'll be back in your ears for another episode next week. But until then, we will see you soon. Thanks very much. See ya. Until then, we'll see you soon. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> we're leaving that. We're leaving that. Bye. Until then, you see that. Bye. Okay.